Keep God's word on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Be careful to do what it says. Then you will truly be successful. Keep God's word on your Hey everybody, welcome to day 61 of our 90 day challenge. I hope you're excited. Today's topic is live in the parentheses. We are in the gospel according to John 4. Full disclaimer, John 4 is my favorite chapter to read about worship. John 4, verse 1 through 8 says this, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. The topic for today is live in the parentheses. A few years ago, I was invited to a worship event. I went because I was yearning to be in God's presence with God's people. But two hours in, I did not experience a God encounter. I experienced several talented singers performing their greatest rendition of the top worship songs of that year. Then I heard these words. They love my songs more than they love me. I knew God was speaking to me, not just about the singers in front of me, but about a growing trend in our 21st century worship culture in America. Nowadays, many people profess to be true worshipers, but if found without a microphone and without singers to accompany them, they do not worship at all. We are living in a day when communion with God is not always the goal and intimacy with the Lord has been co-opted by commercial sing-alongs, not too long, not too dramatic. Sometimes I get the feeling that we are more fascinated by great lyrics than the Lord. But the worship song was always meant to be a conduit to usher people into an awareness of God's presence. The presence is the goal, not the song. The more and more I observe this trend, the more I realize an interesting irony and a difficult dichotomy. Many churches cook up great self-help sermons that titillate our desires but do not communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. In many choirs and praise teams, we sing songs that have very little to do with God at all. Some churches, not all, seem to make time for everything in church but the presence of God, and this is a problem. 
It's a problem because the church exists to be sought and light for a dying world. It's a problem because the church exists to meet the needs of God and not the other way around. Yet constantly, I see this growing trend where we make room for many things, but rush over the encounter. I wonder, I wonder if we didn't have a song to sing, would God's presence be enough? I wonder if we didn't have a voice to communicate our heart, would God's presence be enough? I wish I had heard God whisper more politically correct words that day, less sharp, less rebuking. But what I heard God say back then still rings in my spirit today. They love my songs more than they love me. Friends, welcome to a heart check worship thought. Friends, what would it profit the worshiper to have a great medley and miss the Messiah? What would it profit us to gain the whole world and acquire more followers and likes on social media platforms and still lose our soul? Worship is not an option. For us, it is an imperative, especially if we are aiming to be like Christ. It's the only thing Christ says the Father is seeking after and looking for in John 4. God isn't seeking great intellect, and that's good. God isn't seeking impressive graphics, and that's good. God isn't seeking credentialed teachers, and that is good. All of those are great additions, but what God is seeking for above all else is true worship. When we worship the Lord, we engage him with intention and reverence. We remove every distraction so he is foremost thought and idea in our mind. We worship with reverence because we recognize that we are not on God's level. God is smarter than us. God is sovereign. God is above all powers. God is above all creatures. We are his creation. He is the creator. And a reverential posture reminds us of who we are in light of his awesome wonder. When we worship the Lord, we forget about ourselves and concentrate on him. In an age ripe with idolatry and a compulsive need to place people on the altar of our hearts where only Christ belongs, worship must be a daily part of our lives. This is what God is calling for in this season. True worship. In the text we read today, we are told that Jesus has been traveling. He is on a healing tour, if you will, and he is baptizing more disciples than John. He leaves Judea and departs again into Galilee. He has to go through Samaria. But before we are told these details, we are also told something interesting that most people rush past. Verse two provides a parenthetical that is too good not to slow down and mention. It says, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. I love that in some translations, this sentence is placed within parentheses. The function and purpose of a parenthesis is to give the reader a word, a clause, or a sentence that provides an explanation or an afterthought into a passage that is grammatically complete without it. In other words, the sentence before and after a parenthesis is fine, as is, but the goal of the parenthesis is to tell us something that is important to know, but is not the main goal of the sentence. Did you know? God can speak to us even in small things like a parenthesis. What we are told is that Jesus did not baptize anyone. It was his disciples. In other words, they did the work, but Jesus got the credit. They did the baptizing, but Jesus got the glory. They wrote the book, 
but Jesus got the glory. They recorded the podcast, but Jesus got the glory. They sung the song, but Jesus got the glory. They taught the children, but Jesus got the glory. And my friends, all of us as true worshipers are called to live inside the parentheses. This means we live a life where God gets all the glory and God gets all the attention. We are not obsessed with honorable mention because at bottom, our goal is to point people to the goal, which is Christ. We are his vessel. We are a surge protector, metaphorically speaking, powerless in and of ourselves. But when plugged into the source, we can extend the light and love of Jesus to a dark and dying world. Our responsibility is to live within the parentheses. Our job is to serve the Lord with gladness, come before him with singing, know that the Lord, he is God. It is God who has made us and not ourselves. We are God's people. And the goal is to get out of the way and introduce as many people as possible to the healer of healers, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In a sense, all of us are God's ghostwriter. A ghostwriter is responsible for writing the words, composing thoughts, creating content on behalf of someone else whose name appears on the cover of the book. Yes, I have transcribed their thoughts. Yes, I have labored for months to craft sentences that reflect their intention. Yes, I went to school to learn how to write so that others can understand what I am saying. And yes, I have spent a great deal of time learning the author's voice so that when others read my words, they hear them and not me. But at the end of the day, my best work happens when people read a book and say, this sounds just like the person whose name is on the cover. No, the author didn't write it per se, but the goal wasn't for them to know me. The goal was for them to understand the author. Friends, let's continue to be God's ghostwriter. Let's continue to do the work and allow God to get the glory. I can only imagine how many souls were baptized at the river that morning in John 4. I can only imagine how many nights the disciples went to sleep with back pain from immersing thousands of people into the water for the sake of Jesus Christ. It wasn't easy, as C.C. Winans says it, but it was worth it. Today, I want you to know that God sees you. God sees your sacrifice. God sees your labor. God sees how much of a team player you are. God sees how many nights you lose sleep working hard to make sure God's name is glorified in all that you do. God sees you. God knows you. God is using you for his glory. Continue to worship in spirit and in truth. Continue to do it so that God's name will gain fame. The disciples in this text had the right heart, but they also had what I will call misplaced hunger. Scripture reveals that they are hungry. The second parentheses we see in John 4 happens in verse 8. We are given this seemingly disconnected detail about the disciples. They leave Jesus to go to the city to buy meat to buy bread. Jesus is tired. Scripture says he is weary and worn out. He sits at a well. It is the sixth hour, which means it is about 12 noon. I can imagine the sun is beaming over him. He is hot and there are no air conditioning cars to transport him. There are no fancy fans with electricity. He is hot. He is sticky. He is thirsty. 
His disciples, though, are hungry. So much so that they leave Jesus, all 12 of them, to go into town for bread, for meat. Please don't miss this. They are on tour because of Jesus, but they leave him to get bread. They are empowered to heal, transform, baptize, change, and uplift others because their life has intersected with Jesus Christ. They are who they are because of Christ, but they leave Jesus to tend to their own hunger. Y'all, I have questions. If there were 12 disciples that we know of, how come one of them couldn't stay behind? Why didn't James, Peter, or John say, y'all bring me something back from the bodega. I'm going to stay with Jesus so that Jesus isn't left alone. What was it about their hunger that required them to focus more on their needs than his? I know this has to be important because when the disciples return from town, they try to get Jesus to eat again. And if I use my spiritual imagination, I can see a scene filled with big, bulky bread. The disciples are chomping down on some good meat. And Jesus is looking at them saying, I don't want bread. I want water. I don't want what you're trying to give. I want water. I need something you aren't offering me, but just because you're offering it doesn't mean I'm obligated to take it. Please give me what I asked for. But the disciples are more fixated on their needs being met over Jesus's needs. So Jesus ends up turning to a Samaritan woman, a stranger, to get from her what his familiar disciples did not provide. During that time in history, it was borderline scandalous for a single Jewish man to be seen engaging publicly with the Samaritan woman. But because the disciples aren't there to tend to Jesus, he has to turn to this woman and ask, will you give me a drink? Friends, don't leave Jesus vulnerable to engage with strangers when you are who you are because of your relationship with him. Keep the main thing the main thing. Every time I read this text slowly, I am convicted at how many times I thought to give God something God wasn't asking for. I recall how many times I left the presence of God to pursue my own hunger for attention, affection, and honorable mention. I know I can't be the only one who allowed his hunger pangs to get the best of him. I know I can't be the only one who tried to give Jesus what I thought he wanted without asking him if my gift was what he needed. By the time the disciples return to the well, Jesus has engaged this woman. They are shocked. He is speaking to her. And then in verse 31, they say to Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus turns to them and says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. They don't understand what he is trying to say. So they start logically trying to figure out what he means. Could someone have brought him food? They asked. Wait, disciples, let's rewind the tape. Y'all are just now thinking about Jesus. Y'all have gone to town, purchased your bread, returned to see Jesus talking to a woman, and now you are speculating about whether someone could have brought him food. Wait, church, y'all went to have your needs met. You created a conference to suit your hunger. You accepted registration to suit your hunger. And now at the tail end of the conference, you're asking Jesus to come into the room? Jesus was an afterthought. Jesus sees that they aren't getting it. So he explains, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, I am interested in one thing and one thing only in pleasing my father 
not just feeding him things that can only satisfy my personal agenda, my personal to-do list, my personal hunger pangs, and my personal desires. I am here, says Jesus, to work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man, no woman can work. So don't give me bread, give me water. Y'all, every time we see bread in scripture, often it symbolizes the word of God. Jesus says, I am that bread of life, remember? And every time we see water in scripture, it symbolizes the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, worship. Could it be that Jesus was asking for something that the disciples were not giving him? Could it be that they were trying to stuff Jesus's proverbial throat with bread when all along he was asking for water? He literally asks the woman at the well for water. And in what ways have we been the woman at the well and the disciples at the store? In what ways have we misunderstood what Jesus was asking for? All because we were caught up in our pre-existing definitions of worship like this woman. And in what ways have we cooked up something for Jesus in the prayer room that he wasn't asking for in the first place? I wonder if whole denominations were built on the premise of giving God something God isn't asking for. I wonder if whole books have been written in defense of something God doesn't need or require. Today, I want you to think about all that you are doing in Jesus' name. Is it rooted in your hunger or his thirst? Are you hungry for what God is hungry for? Are you hurting about what God is hurting about? Are your sermons about having your needs met more than they are about communicating the heart of the father to a people who needs his truth more than they need our opinion. Today, let us remember to live in the parentheses. Glory to God. Let us give God what God is asking for. Let's always remember to center Christ in all that we do and say so that his name can gain fame in the world. <laughs> so what is So what, so what did your worship work today? Your worship work today is to spend more time in his presence, asking this simple question, God, what are you thirsty for? How can I minister to you, Lord? Reveal to me how to be a true worshiper and help me not to give you something that you're not asking for. This week, focus not on how many people know your name, but the fame of his. Remember that in all you do, Jesus gets all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Sing it with me, the only sovereign God. The only 